pull out your sermon insert. On the inside of it, you'll see our sermon text, uh, a kind of an outline and everything you'll need for our time together this morning. We are continuing our survey of the Old Testament. We started on page one, Genesis one. We have looked at the Old Testament story as it's unfolding, a story of unfolding grace, hence the name of our series. It may not seem that way, though, in our passage today, which is a dark one, a grim one. We are talking about exile, the story of Israel's exile, yes, captivity, slavery from their land into the foreign land of Babylon. This is the lowest point in the Hebrew people's lives. Now, rather than read the entirety of chapter 5, which details that, the fall of Jerusalem and the subsequent captivity, I just want to read the last paragraph. The last paragraph of 2 Kings 25, which is the last paragraph of 2 Kings, ends in that low point, in captivity, in bondage, slavery to the, the Babylonians, and yet there's just a slight glimmer of hope, which I hope to unfold for us throughout the morning. So let's stand for the reading of God's word from 2 Kings 25. I'm just going to read verses 27 through 30. So follow along. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, I uh, have an experience, maybe this is much of my life, that you can relate to. And that is this, I find myself being both impressed and discouraged by humanity. I know I'm not alone because I see some smiles and some nods. I am blown away by some of the cool things we've done and accomplished and also depressed. I'm amazed and then baffled all at the same time. Sometimes within moments, we have done some cool things, made some unbelievable advancements, but we're still idiots. And I'm using the collective we here, not to step on any particular toe, but we are idiots. Think about some of the amazing advancements we have made in medicine. Medical advancements, the discoveries we've made, longer life expectancy. I have a surgery next month. They are going to do things to my knee I didn't know were possible. They include growing cartilage, scraping things out, making my knee work again. I would have been, just 200 years ago, doomed to have pain in my left knee the rest of my life. Blown away by some of the things. I'm uh, looking to go visit one of our missions partners in Africa, so I've been doing some research. You can get to Africa in nine hours on a plane. That was a year-plus journey a couple centuries ago. Our cars park themselves, don't even need gas anymore a lot of the times. So many cool things. The Wi-Fi, we all have a pocket either in your purse or uh, mine's in my back pocket here. I'm carrying around a supercomputer. 
where I can, because of the invisible waves all around us right now, tap into the internet and search anything. I can find out what this or that word means in any language, or what is the capital of this or that, or the creativity in the arts. Or, uh, as a sports fan, I'm still blown away by the speed with which a fastball travels, leaving the hand of the pitcher before it gets to the catcher, how fast that is. The height with which athletes can jump now. The speed with which runners are running. The amazing catches. We've, we've seen growth. Amazing things. CGI and movies have come a long way. I might offend some people here, but we recently went back through the original three Star Wars. Yikes. <laughs> Seriously, it was bad. I was like, wow, that was so great when I watched it the first time, but now I'm used to, to better things with my eyes. Look, CGI's come a long way. We're pretty cool, right? But we're also still kind of dumb. World wars, genocide, racism, 9-11, epic fails, whether you're watching it on YouTube or America's Funniest Home Videos. You don't have to live on the east side very long to see some, some oddities on the east side. I will spare you of some of those. Just our stupidity. We have discovered, engineered penicillin and other medicines, and yet human trafficking exists. I didn't know the moon and the, the, the space stuff was so controversial, so I'll stay off of that one. Was, we've done cool things up there, maybe. Um, <laughs> but we thought frosted tips would be a good idea in the 90s. I was talking to my wife about some of these examples, and she was like, say Nickelback and Creed. I was like, no, that will, that will hurt people's feelings. <laughs> and I kind of like Nickelback, so I'm an idiot, I guess. <laughs> Pornography. Wickedness that's being made to seem normal in our media. The movies we watch. Even being pushed down into young adult literature and film. Even into children's movies. Wickedness being made to look normal. Amazing advancements, right? And we're dummies. <laughs> Sorry, one more. I, I wrote Twilight series. These <laughs> are the benefits of being in second service. Oh, wait, this one's being recorded, isn't it? Sorry. Um, but in the same way, I have found my own heart as we've done this Old Testament survey, being simultaneously impressed with the people of Israel sometimes, some of these men and women of the faith, and utterly discouraged. Again, the Egypt story is the example. They saw the ten plagues. The Lord, Yahweh, decimates Pharaoh in Egypt and miraculously delivers them cloud by day and fire by night, and then just a few rough nights in the wilderness, they're like, let's go back to slavery. It's silly. That story that we read and the, the story of exile is one of the, the latter ones. The I'm shocked by this. Blown away at the rebellion of God's people. Where they thought it would be a, a good idea to worship their God, but also all of the other gods. Sacrifice their own children on the altars of some of the foreign gods around them. I'm blown away at their rebellion to Yahweh. Now, 2 Kings 25 doesn't come out of 
anywhere. 2 Kings 25 has 2 Kings 1 through 24 before it, and Genesis up through 1 Kings before it. You may recall a man named David. King David is a man after God's own heart, although supremely flawed, broken. God enters into a covenant with this King David and says, I will be your God, you will be my people, you will be my king. And he promises David an everlasting dynasty and says, one of your children, one of your descendants will always be on the throne as my king on earth. David has a son named Solomon. Again, just going back to my opening illustration, amazing, idiot. The wisest of wise people from all over the world were coming to hear his wisdom and his verdicts in judicial cases. And he thought it'd be good to have 700 wives, 300 concubines. Or maybe I got that backwards. 703, 1,000. And he made a shipwreck of his faith, turned to other gods, did not destroy the altars amongst other things. His son Rehoboam, things start to get really bad. Under Rehoboam, the kingdom splits into two. The nation of Israel really becomes Israel in the north, which is ten tribes called Israel. And the kingdom in the south, Judah, with the capital city of Jerusalem there. The Judah was a little bit more faithful, but still not that much better. So the kingdom is split. They sometimes are fighting with each other, but then other times they're fighting enemies together. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. What happens in 2 Kings is the world empire of the time, the Assyrians, the Assyrian empire, Sennacherib is the king at the time, comes and levels the northern kingdom of Israel and takes them into captivity in 722 B.C. That's not what we're looking at today. We're looking at something a little bit later. Because the southern kingdom of Judah is spared from that invasion. Until 586, a new world empire is on the scene. The kingdom of Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he sacks the city of Jerusalem, invades the kingdom of Judah, levels the city, destroys the temple, and takes the southern kingdom of Judah into exile in 586 B.C. Exile is a painful, dark time in Israel's history. You can read more in 2 Kings later. One of the uh, invaders of Babylon, one of the, kings, king, uh, one of the leaders tries to get out of Jerusalem, but he's captured. And the Babylonians make him watch as all of his children are slaughtered right before his eyes, and then they gouge his eyes out. So the last, so yeah, sorry, parents. The la- last t- thing he got to see was that. Just trying to get us into the shoes of the darkness that the people are, are seeing, experiencing here. It is grim. But... This is what I want us to see, so lift our eyes now. Above just Israel's exile, which we'll get back to in a moment, this story is actually about you. It's about me. Because biblically speaking, exile is more than just 2 Kings 25. As we're going to see in a little bit, it is a story that goes throughout Scripture and has to do with us. Exile, Israel's exile, is actually a picture of our broken relationship with God. We as sinful humanity exiled from the Lord and his presence. So as we're looking at Israel and thinking about Jehoiakim, it's actually a picture of our broken relationship, humanity's broken relationship with God. So I want to do three things as we kind of survey this section of the Old Testament story, but also look at all of Scripture. The first is we're going to define exile, so exile defined. Secondly, exile throughout the Bible And third, exile in our lives. So first, and hopefully most briefly, exile defined. The dictionary, I think this was Oxford Dictionary, defines exile this way. Quote, 
the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons, period. Uh, Usually, and especially the case in biblical literature, it's connected with being conquered and then being uh, made servants of that conquering kingdom. That is exile. The psalm that we use for our call to worship, Psalm 107, is one that I'm putting to memory, and it speaks of this. It talks about the exile, the captivity, as living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Quote, prisoners in affliction and in irons, chains. And also, Psalm 107 tells us why they were there. Because they rebelled against the words of God and they spurned the counsel of the Most High. They're in exile. And it's more than just being taken off into Babylon. That is serious and that is dark and grim, but it's actually a banishment from the very presence of God, His face. So more broadly in the scriptures, like I've mentioned already, exile is about a broken, fractured, cracked relationship with our creator God. And more specifically, it has to do with banishment, the banishment of a sinner from his very presence. Now it results, exile results from the people of God turning away from God to worship and follow things that are not God. God warned them of this. I'm making a covenant with you. There are stipulations to my relationship. Be about me. Don't worship Baal or the Asherah or their God or the Egyptian gods. I am the one true God. Exile in the scriptures results when the people of God turn away from the one true God and worship things, give their affections to things, follow things, buy into things, believe things that are not God. That's how Israel gets to where they are here. That's exile defined. Secondly, exile through Scripture. Now, when we come to 2 Kings 25 and we're reading about Jehoiakim being in exile, being released from prison, putting, taking off his prison garments, that's, that doesn't come out of nowhere. Exile has been seen before. And if we had begun reading in Genesis 1 and gotten to this point, we would have seen exile over and over again as a theme. So to understand exile, we have to go back to the beginning. In your insert on the right side, I put Genesis chapter 3. We are not more than three pages into the scriptures before we see exile. The story is Adam and Eve. It is the famous story of the fall. Adam and Eve are tempted, tricked by that ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil, as Revelation says, to defy God. Don't listen to his word. Believe, make your own decisions. Be your own God. Don't listen to his word. Eat of this fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve fall. They rebel against God. And here's the result. Look at just verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. And from the east of, uh, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <coughs> Apologies. <coughs> exile comes to us on page three. The fall is an exile story. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. They're banished from God's 
presence. They lose harmony, harmony with creation, harmony with one another, and harmony in their relationship with God. And this exile or expulsion from the Garden of Eden has to do with us because their descendants, themselves included, and their descendants, us as well, are now living a life in bondage, captivity to slavery, or I'm sorry, to sin and to death, <coughs> completely unable to change our situation, unless that is God steps in, unless God does something to re- reverse our condition. But they're not left without hope. Genesis chapter 3 actually has the gospel in it. We hit that often here, but it's easy for us just to forget. Verse 15 of, of Genesis chapter 3 is what's called the Proto-Evangelion. The the proto-gospel, the first pronouncement of the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3, where in pronouncing the curses on the serpent and the woman and the man, God says, I will make a descendant come from the woman. There will be a seed of the woman come, and she will crush the head of the serpent. This seed from Eve will reverse the effects of the fall, bring us back into new creation will cover sin and defeat the devil. Now, we could explore exile more. We could go into Cain. Cain is said to be banished from the very face of God. Lamech, the the story of the Tower of Babel, then into Egypt with, with Pharaoh, and then Moses delivers the people from Egypt. That is an exile, an exodus story. But fast forward back to 2 Kings 25. I just wanted you to see it doesn't come from out of the blue. Exiles all over the Bible, but Israel, the kingdom of Judah here is being exiled, banished, and this point on, they are going to be longing on their tippy toes, praying and lamenting for another exodus, and that's what the prophets later pick up on. They call this, uh, this exile into Assyria in the north and uh, in Babylon from the southern kingdom as a return to Egypt. They use the, the exodus language for what they're experiencing. And they speak of their need now in Babylon of another exodus. Get us out of Egypt. Well, you're not in Egypt. You're in Babylon. I know, but exile is the story of our lives. It's a big biblical theme. But pause for a moment. I just want to get real and get practical. I don't always do the best job of this myself, getting into the world of the story. I can just read it like, okay, it's been a while ago. Come on next. But imagine how they felt. How do you think Judah felt. Thousands and thousands of people being carted off in chains to become slaves in Babylon when just a few decades earlier they were in a golden age of prosperity with King Solomon on the throne and they had it all. Our God is the one true God. Where where is he? What do you think they might have been feeling? Anger maybe? Questioning? but I know they felt shame, disgrace. Because in every story of exile, that is the emotion. Go back with me to the first exile of Adam and Eve. What do they feel when they are banished from the presence of God, when they lose harmony with one another and harmony with creation, sin and death come into the world? What do they feel? Shame. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Hide from the presence of God. Shame. 
And so that's where I think we can make a bridge to our lives pretty easily, right? Anybody else know shame? Feel shame? Disgrace? Israel's walking away, probably shackled together, feeling unclean. Disgrace. I felt shame. But shame's tricky, isn't it? You can, you can feel shame or be ashamed because of your guilt. You've done something. You've violated God's law. We call that a sin. You've sinned. You're guilty of that sin. Ah, I feel shame. Repent. Be forgiven of that. But some, sometimes our shame is connected to our guilt and our actions, right? Um, but shame is more than that. Um, I've, I've been inspired by this point because of the, the youth retreat I took our students to last week. The preacher was speaking of shame. And I couldn't help, and all of the talks think, like, that's Israel. I'm preparing to preach this, this chapter, this section of Scripture, this section of the, the Hebrew Bible, knowing that's exactly what they would have felt. That's what I would have felt. I've lost it all. Our God has departed us because of our stupidity and our worship of other things. Are elevating things, not God, to the level of Yahweh. So sometimes our, our shame is connected to guilt, but sometimes, and this is the trickiness of shame, you might be feeling shame because of something done to you. Someone else has hurt you, harmed you, taken something from you, and you feel shame because of that person, that thing, that event, and it may not be connected to your own sin. You feel shame could be connected to your, your struggles in life. A part of just living in a broken world is that we sometimes do and say and experience things that bring shame. And they may not be then of themselves like sin. If you're like me, you have probably said something stupid. Anybody else? Yeah. I have moments in my life, two of them in particular, if I'm being honest. There's plenty more, but those are the big two, where I'm like, whoa, put my, I, I, I said that and I'm an idiot. I put my foot in my mouth. And just to think about that moment right now gets me red in the face. I get a little sweaty and, and, and the, the sweat starts to trickle down my back to think about that moment. And friends, one of them was five years ago, another was like over a decade. Talk about the power of shame. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have a moment in time. Oh, I can't believe I did that. It still gets you. Or... Maybe it's more of an overarching reality of your life. This thing that I keep wrestling with, it's right here, and it's getting me, and I feel shame. You're angry. And you keep being angry. My heart is one of jealousy. You notice lust in your life. I'm bitter, fearful. I'm racked with anxiety and I, I just I struggle. I can't get over this. And then shame comes. How could you? Shame. Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection, defines shame this way. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. End quote. Friends, Adam and Eve were exposed and humiliated. Shame. How do we know that? They tried to cover themselves up. Israel is feeling exposed and humiliated. 
and you and I are probably a lot like Adam and Eve. Whatever that thing is. So in my life, the two, the two moments in my, my life where I'm like, wow, that was really dumb to say that to that person. And it still gets me to this day. How do I try to, to sew loincloths and cover that with fig leaves? I just push it out of my mind. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. Ugh. But maybe you might be sewing fig leaves to cover your shame by, by working really hard, looking put together, working amassing more stuff and wealth, your success is a way of actually just covering the deep shame you feel. Looking good before others. Maybe you're, you've slid into the use of al- alcohol, substances, other, other things to, to be a covering for your shame. There's a, there's a ton of others, but friends, the good news is the gospel tells us God's gracious enough for your shame whether it's connected to your sin and guilt, whether it's connected to something done to you, or whether it is other. God is good enough. God is gracious enough. He's merciful enough for your shame. Bring it to him. Whether we find ourselves in Egypt or Babylon or, or just the way that you are, bring it to Jesus because Jesus knows. He died a very shameful death naked on a tree for you for your sin. He knows what it's like to, to feel shame, certain types of shame at least, not the ones connected to sin and guilt. Bring your shame, your pain, your questioning, your darkness to Jesus. Third and final, exile in our lives. So I've talked about the, 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 the exile that Judah is experiencing here, that exile is a, a theme of Scripture, but what does it really have to do with us? I want us to see two things, and it's going to sound weird to say it. One, I want you to see that your exile, friends, our exile is over. And I want us to see that our exile is not over. Let me show you. 2 Kings 25 is the key. This is a flash of light in the darkness. The curtain of Israel's story seems to be coming down, and it's a dark story. What's going to happen? In the very end, there's a flash of light, of hope. Hold on. What is that flash of light? It's this man, Jehoiakim. Remember, the temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem is smoldering in flames. The walls of the city are broken down. The kingdom is gone. The people are being deported into Babylon. And it seems like God's glory himself, glory is departing. Ichabod. And where in the world is King David? God told us we'd always have a king on the throne, a son of David. Where is he? Meet Jehoiakim of the tribe of Judah, son of David. Little glimmer of hope. Now we have to go outside of 2 Kings to get a little little more clues, right? Jehoiakim has a descendant named Salathiel, who has a descendant named Zerubbabel who is the governor of Judah after a kind of anticlimactic, somewhat exodus back into the land. But King David lives on. But they're still in exile in their own land because a superpower by the name of Rome comes onto the scene and obliterates everybody and just takes over the entire known world. So the people of Israel are in exile, but they just are living in their own homes again. They're in the Holy Land but still in exile because of Rome's heavy and oppressive hand, and you can just hear them questioning. 
Where's our king? When's he going to come? When is God going to deliver? And friends, there's silence from heaven. Malachi's words are penned. Hundreds of years go by with nothing. Nothing. Just silence. And the next words that heaven speaks are these ones. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Just a paragraph later, Joseph has a dream and he says, slow down, Mary will have a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is a dark and grim story and yet it's a story where God is faithful throughout the whole thing. He preserves the line of David. He keeps his promise and he brings his people out of exile. As I said at the beginning, we are utterly helpless because of Adam and Eve's sin unless God intervenes and intervene he did. God himself took on flesh, took on our nature and became a person. He has rescued us from exile. It's in a person named Jesus of Nazareth. Our exile is over, friends. By putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we've been delivered. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We're free from sin and death and slavery to the devil. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has won the war. We are now free. The shackles have been broken. So come to Jesus. Know a freedom from exile that is only in him, the Son of Man, Son of God, who's put an end to all your sin, and in whom we have no fear of death. Deliverance has come. Exile is over, and it's a person. Jesus, the abolisher of exile. But, and it may sound contradictory, our exile's not over. Exile has ended, yes, deliverance, salvation, and redemption has come in Jesus, and yet, we're not yet entirely experiencing it. It's secure. It's done. The war has been won. We're free from the devil, free from our sin. Jesus has conquered as our king, but we're still not yet fully with him. We're doing some mop-up operations still. Peter says exactly this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's very aware of our freedom from exile. He just preached it in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, we're no longer exiles to ourself, our depravity, our sin, our slavery to, to the, the devil. Exile's end has come, and yet we don't fully experience it until on that day when we see him shining brighter than the sun, when our faith is turned to sight, pain to pleasure, and we know everlasting joy in his presence. But we're not there yet. We're totally free. We're as good as resurrected spiritually right now as we will be then. 
But what now? Well, friends, we do what they did. We pray. We lament. It's believed that the large majority of our lament psalms, which we so often talk about here, are written in this time period. Dark times. We write laments. We weep with those who are weeping. We cry with those who are experiencing unique ways their exile is rearing its head. We praise God. We sing his, his praise. We make much of Jesus. We celebrate together fellowship with other freed exiles. Until glory, when we go to be with Jesus, we hold on to Jesus, knowing that he holds on to us. That looks pretty ordinary most of the time. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep holding on. We call these the ordinary means of grace. Word, prayer, fellowship, and communion with other saints. And then together, it looks like communal means of grace, of which one beautiful and amazing and empowering one is the table, whereby we as freed exiles are nourished and empowered to keep holding on to the one who has set us free, to strengthen us as exiles, but as exiles who've been rescued. Let's pray. God, be with us now as we go to the table. I pray that you would nourish us as exiles by faith. Meet with us now as those who have been rescued. Lift our eyes to you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.